themselves. So our class is called Jesus the Man from Heaven, and so we're studying Christology, uh, a study about Jesus the Christ. And we say Man from Heaven, uh, that's a title of his, uh, taken from one of the epistles, and it just describes him well, that he's from heaven, he's fully God, but he took on human flesh. He's, he's a man um, as well, and it's a fun way to think about his uh, humility in coming as a man and uh, his willingness to die as the God-man in our place and then the benefits that we gain because of what he's done. So as we think about our class and uh, what, how we want to use this uh, beyond just our knowledge, we want knowledge, like we've said before, but we want to make sure that we're understanding who Jesus truly is from the Word and then believing in who he is, and then we get to understand further that as believers in Jesus, we're united to Christ in our salvation, and we have so many privileges and benefits that come because of our union with him, and then we get to live in response to that by faith. So over and over through this class, we get I keep saying that our union with Jesus is true of us. It's something that's real, but it doesn't always feel real to us. The benefits that we have through the gospel uh, don't always uh, feel like a reality in our life. It often feels the opposite of what the gospel says is true. And so we can choose to believe that it's true and act um, in faith in response to that. And so that'll be true again tonight as we uh, study. And uh, as we get started, I want to just do a little something on the board here. So we're going to look tonight at our position before God, before we trust in Christ, and then kind of the process of our, what our union with Christ brings um, after we trust in Him. So the Bible says that we are guilty before God um, in our natural state, uh, just because we're human. So what are some reasons that God views us as guilty? I have three in my head. Why why does God look down on us before we trust in Christ, and why are we guilty before him? Yeah? We break his laws. Yeah, we sin, right? So that's the the one we're all very familiar with. (laughs) We sin a lot, and that that makes us guilty before God. Good. What else? The other two are more theological, but give you a hint. Uh, One has to do with Adam. Actually, they both have to do with Adam. (laughs) Yes, maybe. Sin nature, good. So, Adam was not created with a sin nature, but when he sinned, when he uh, went against what God said for him to do, he then had a sin nature. And so now we're inclined to sin, and uh, we would say that that's passed on along through our parents. Okay, so we get a sin nature indirectly from Adam through parents. Uh, So, yeah. What's the third one? Anybody have an idea? 
It was it was a good comment. It was close. Close. So it does have to do with Adam still. We're dead. Yes. Good, good, good. Okay, so it it has to do with Adam and how Adam sinned. And yes, we have the sin nature from Adam, but we also are uh, dead in Adam, like like Jim is saying, and it's it's opposite of God, whose life. And so it's original sin uh, that is imputed to our account. So it's imputed guilt from Adam. Okay, so we have our own experience, the things that we do that make us guilty. We have the sin nature, which is imparted parent to child, parent to child, parent to child. And then we have uh, the guilt of original sin uh, put on our account legally. And that's another reason that we're guilty before God. So tonight, we're going to focus a lot on this one because that has to do with uh, Christ, uh, that we're, we have imputed guilt, and we need something from Christ to solve that. Okay, All right, so how do we get out of the left side of the spectrum? What do we have to do to not be guilty of these three things anymore? Salvation, right? So be more specific, though. What's that? You have to believe. Right. You have to believe in Jesus. Exactly. So to leave guilt, we have to believe in Jesus. So it's through Jesus that we can move across the spectrum. Now, the, the point about uh, believing in Jesus and salvation that we stress most of the time is that we're forgiven of our sins, which is true and necessary and amazing. And so our sins are blotted out and remembered no more. So what does that do for us? So we're no longer guilty, and we get to move up the line to zero. All right, so now we are no longer guilty because we've been washed clean. So is being forgiven enough to have eternal life? The answer is no, it's not. It only brings us to zero. So this is where our Roman Catholic friends go wrong is because they believe that through faith in Jesus, they're forgiven of their sins. And this is where the language, when we're communicating with them, it's like, well, it seems like they believe the same thing as us. But they think that they just get to zero and then they have to earn righteousness Uh, through uh, the sacraments. So if we do this. So they would say, I, I am saved, I am forgiven because I believed in Jesus and I am forgiven of my sins. But the part they leave unsaid is that they're working for their righteousness. And that's kind of the, the hidden thing um, in their theology uh, that sometimes it's hard to miss or it's hard to see because 
through the sacraments, through their, their holy things, the things that impart grace in their lives, like communion uh, and baptism are the two you know, that we often think about. Through those two things, they're earning righteousness. And whatever they don't earn, they have to pay for in purgatory. And so it becomes a work-based righteousness, even though we would agree about this portion, that we're forgiven. So sometimes we, we don't believe that. We wouldn't say that that's what we believe. But sometimes we live that way. We live like we're forgiven, but then we have to earn right standing before God. But that's not how it works. When we believe in Jesus, we are justified, is the theological word we used, which means we're declared righteous. And so we would say that we're, we, we're given right standing with God um, through our faith in Jesus. So that's how we move up the scale. So when we talk about salvation, we're saying God completely washes my slate clean and he gives me all of Jesus' righteousness. And that's amazing. We, we don't have to labor for righteousness because we have the righteousness of Christ. Uh, but it's easy to, to kind of fall back into this mentality that like, oh man, I keep sinning. I need to like earn this back from God. Or we fall into the habit of, of when we do sin, that we don't say, because I'm righteous in Jesus, I can own this. I can acknowledge that I've sinned and confess it to God and repent of my sin and move forward. Instead, uh, we make excuses for our sin. We self-justify. But we don't need to do that because we're fully justified already. We're already declared righteous. So, Uh, The few things we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to kind of zoom in on a few things, is uh, this stuff. So we're going to look at how uh, the guilt of Adam is imputed to us, and then we're going to look at how the declared righteousness is imputed to us through Christ, and what righteousness that is, because that will make a difference in in how we live our lives and how uh, God's grace directs our lives from day to day. So to illustrate this, I need three helpers. (laughs) Everyone's scared. There's no fighting involved tonight, so you don't have to worry about that. It's going to be super fun, I promise. Three people want to come up and help? You just got to wear a shirt. We can start with two. Jim? I see that hand. Jim? All right, come on up. It'll, just, it'll be really short. This one's easy. It's going to be great. That's true. You want to volunteer one? Sure. That'd be great. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, there you go. Oh, I got one more shirt. But we can wait on this shirt. It's okay. Okay. So, we're going to say that Amy, she's going to play the part of Jesus. It's great. It's great. Jim's going to play the part of us, the guilty people. Okay. So, you look great. You look great. That fits you really well. Okay. 
So this shirt represents our guilt. Okay, we're guilty for three reasons. Our personal acts of sin, our sin nature, and the imputed guilt from Adam's sin. Amy's shirt represents Jesus' righteousness. So there's no guilt, there's no sin. She's perfectly righteous. So what happens in justification is we switch garments, so to speak. So uh, you guys can switch shirts. So what happens is Jesus takes our, our sin and our guilt upon himself, and he pays for it on the cross, and it's forgiven. So we get back to zero. And then he gives us his complete righteousness. So it's like we're, we're putting on someone else's coat, and we did nothing to deserve it. We did nothing to gain this righteousness. Uh, but here we are, uh, dressed in righteousness that's not ours. So, so now Amy, who's playing the part of Jesus, dies on the cross for our sins. And so now you can take off the guilty, sinful garment, and it's paid for. It's gone. So you can just throw it away. It would be great. Perfect. Thank you, Amy. You can go sit down. Perfect. And then I need one more person. You look great, Jim. One more. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> AJ, you want to come up? Yes. I knew you would. So we got a Hawaiian shirt theme. These are my two Hawaiian shirts. So don't, don't think too harshly about me. There's a sleeve somewhere in there. I know it. So what happens with uh, the righteousness of Christ is there's two schools of thought. There's covenant theology, and then there's more of a dispensational theology. And one believes that they wear the righteousness of Christ in his law-keeping. And the other believes that they wear the righteousness of Christ in his divine righteousness. Sure, his law-keeping is there, but he's already has the divine righteousness of God. And so they're two different shirts, right? They look different. And so the thing that we want to notice is that whichever shirt you think you're wearing, you're going to live differently. So if positionally you're wearing law-keeping righteousness, then practically in real life you're going to keep the law because that's what you are positionally. And so what covenant theologians end up doing is they place themselves back under the law and they, they, they live the law in their life. They, they pursue that as a thing and we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, what we try to do is we say we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, his divine righteousness. And so we pursue Christ-likeness, godliness, because... That's who Christ is, is he is perfectly righteous in who he is as a member of the Godhead. And so it plays out, it's, it's a bigger deal than just, uh, well, we're both, we both end up righteous uh, because they're, they're different righteousnesses. And so it plays out in practical life, it plays out in, in parenting. And so I have an example of a parenting book where they're encouraging you to have your child keep the law. And it's just really interesting. So we don't think the law is a bad thing. The law reveals what God is like. But Jesus didn't keep the law in our place. And so we'll look at that um, a little bit later. Uh, The purpose of him keeping the law was to uh, fulfill the law and to show that he is 
the perfect sacrifice. He didn't have to earn righteousness. They actually say that in the book, is that Jesus earned righteousness. Uh, he already had it. He is God. He had the full righteousness of God from the beginning. So thank you guys. Can you put those on the, the backs of the chair so we can point to them later on? We can move this one here. All right, we can give them a hand. They did so good. So this is another one of those things that it feels like we're still guilty, right? It feels like I keep sinning. I have to still be guilty before God. There's no way he's forgiven me and that I'm 100% righteous. But this is the beauty of the gospel is that through our union with Jesus, we're taken from guilty all the way to 100% righteous positionally before God. And so we, we may feel guilty, but we're not. That's the beauty of it. We are righteous before God, and he loves us with the same love that he loves his son. Okay, so as we jump in here, we're going to uh, first overview Adam's original sin and why his guilt is put on our account and kind of what, uh, what our participation level was in that. So let's go to Romans chapter 5. We're going to mostly be in Romans tonight. And we're going to have to keep it moving, so stick with me. So Adam's original sin. So Romans 5, verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so this is talk the man is talking about Adam. And so we are guilty, we were dead through sin because of Adam's sin. So we're going to look more um, in a minute about how we participate in that. Uh, but there's again two schools of thought. So the first one is uh, oh yeah, the first blank is why does God consider me guilty of Adam's sin? So it's clear from Romans 5.12 that we all die through Adam. So we're all viewed as guilty because of Adam's sin. So why does God consider me guilty of Adam's sin? So through this, it's, it's hard in theology because I'm going to argue my point of view. And if a covenant theologian was standing here next to me, it'd be a lot harder because some of the things I say, he'd be like, I don't think that. <laughs> so... We have to, it's true, isn't it, Charlie? We have to understand that uh, we're drawing lines, and this is a historical argument that much of it has been dropped, much of the, the foundation of the theology people don't claim anymore, but they still hold the stuff that's standing on top of the foundation. It doesn't make sense to me, but this is, it, it seems like they're being inconsistent, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So, The first view is federal headship. So Adam was our federal head. So this is the covenant view. Federal is, uh, it comes from the Latin word for for covenant. So this arises out of covenant theology. And so here's those three ways that we're uh, guilty um, before God. So in your notes, uh, the guilt of Adam's sin is credited directly to our accounts by means of Adam functioning as our legal or covenant representative. 
and then our sin nature, and then C, our personal acts of sin. So we're focusing on letter A for tonight and the distinction between the two views, because that's where the differences arise. So you can see, I'm sorry, it's on your second page, but you can see in the second one, the underlined portion, there's different means. So under the federal view, it's by means of Adam functioning as our legal or covenant representative. And then in the next one, it's called the seminal headship view, and you'll see why in a second. It's the same thing. The guilt of Adam's sin is credited directly to our accounts, but by a different means, by means of our participation in Adam's sin being present in seed form. So why, why is there this difference? Why does it matter? <clears throat> the covenant view arises out of covenant theology, which when I first heard that, I was like, oh yeah, I believe in the covenants. Like there's the Abrahamic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant, there's the Davidic covenant. But that's not what they're referring to. They're referring to theological covenants that are come to uh, theologically. So they're not necessarily in Scripture laid out as like the Mosaic covenant would be. So there's the covenant of redemption, there's the covenant of works, and there's the covenant of grace in covenant theology, those three. And uh, so the, the main one that isn't in, in the Bible is the covenant of works. So the covenant between God and Adam. And so what they believe in the covenant of works is that if Adam obeyed God, the means by which he would have eternal life is through his obedience, through his law keeping. So in the covenant of works, uh, Adam was saved through his works is, is how the covenant functioned. And Adam obviously failed in that. <laughs> you know, we all know Genesis uh, 3. And so what happens is that uh, theologically they say Christ fulfills the covenant of works in the covenant of grace. So he's the uh, elect uh, one of God who fulfills the covenant of works. So what happens is you have, you have Adam, he fails in the covenant of works, and eternal life is through obedience to God. And Adam can't do it. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't make it. He fails. And so we're all doomed because of him. But what happens is the second Adam comes and he fulfills the covenant of works. So now there is eternal life through Christ's law keeping. So it's very specifically tied to the covenant of works. And this is the part that covenant theologians today say like, oh yeah, I don't believe in a covenant of works. And it's like, well, that, that's the foundation of all of your theology. Um, and so they, they believe in the covenant of works, and so eternal life is through keeping the law. Christ perfectly keeps the law, so he lives our life in our place. He does what Adam couldn't do. He does what we can do. And then when we're justified, we're given Christ's law-keeping. And so that's the righteousness that is applied to our account, is Christ's uh, righteous uh, law-keeping works. So I don't believe that's what happens because I don't believe in the covenant of works. Uh, if you read Genesis 3 or Genesis 1 and 2 where the covenant of works supposedly originates, uh, there is no covenant. Sure, God gives Adam instructions of this is what you should and shouldn't do, but the word covenant comes from the Hebrew word to cut. 
because covenants require a sacrifice and there was no sacrifice. And so there's no covenant. <laughs> uh, and it just, I don't know, it all, it all falls apart. There, there is no covenant in Genesis 1 and 2 in the sense of, if you keep my law, you will live forever. Um, so, yeah, I just, I don't think there is. And so you can look through the other covenants, uh, you know, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Uh, they, they have sacrifices. The new covenant, they have sacrifices that go along with it. There is a shedding of blood that seals the covenant that it does not occur in Genesis 1 and 2. And so we would say uh, there is no covenant of works, so there is no federal headship, and he's not our covenant representative, as they would say that. So instead, we try to approach it uh, still theologically. Um, there's no you know, we know we're guilty of Adam's sin, but it doesn't say exactly why. And so we try to figure out how that works. And the, the way we describe it is through seminal headship. Um, so this is by means of our participation in Adam's sin being present in seed form. So this is kind of weird, but in the Bible, it talks about how children are present in their parents' activities in the loins of the father. Okay, so we'll look at that in Hebrews 7 in a minute. Uh, But this is the way that uh, best explains how we are guilty of Adam's sin is through our participation with him. So it's really interesting. We're actually there with him in seed form participating in uh, the sin that Adam committed. Uh, So that next part there. So why does God consider me guilty of Adam's sin? Uh, Romans 5.12 tells us because all sinned, not because Adam represented us. So if we go back to Romans 5.12, it doesn't say, so your next blank there is guilty. It doesn't say that we all died in Adam because he represented us as our covenant head in the covenant of works. Rather, it says, uh, therefore, just as through one man sinned, Uh, Sorry, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so we think that that's saying that we sinned there with Adam. We all sinned with him. And so how did we sin with Adam? That's the the question that's asked next. And so if we go to Hebrews chapter 7, we see a really interesting uh, description of a father and son. <clears throat> okay, so Hebrews 7, 9 through 10. So I'll go ahead and give you the blanks so you can uh, see it as we go through. So Levi paid tithes before he was born and must therefore have existed in seed form inside Abraham when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. So let's read Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And so we see here that uh, Levi participated 
in the giving of tithes to Melchizedek before he was born, before he was conceived, because he was in the loins of his father. And so this is the, a similar way to how we participated in, in Adam, the first man, because we were in his loins when he uh, sinned in the garden. And so it's not just that we're guilty of his sin because he did that and he represented us. We were there. We, we not only would have chosen the same thing if we were him, but we were there choosing it with him. We are equally responsible uh, for his activity as Levi is responsible for giving tithes to Melchizedek while he was in the loins of his father, Abraham. Okay? So that's kind of weird. You know, we don't talk about that a lot, uh, this type of thing. But it's helpful for us to understand, uh, especially for young people. They struggle a lot that why would God condemn me for something that Adam did? Well, part of it is we, we commit our own acts of sin. But the other part is we were there with him. We were participating in it. Sure, he was representing the race, but we were there present with him uh, in seed form. So we're looking at these two different uh, schools of thought, the federal headship and the seminal headship. And it seems like you kind of end up in the same place by whichever one you take. So the results are the same, uh, and your next blank, but the means are different. And so my question is, or are they? Are the results actually the same? And I don't think they are because of the way that it plays out in justification with Christ's law-keeping or his divine righteousness, and then practically on our account, what then we live out positionally. So I think that it really messes up their soteriology, their, their salvation doctrine, and their sanctification doctrine by taking this misstep with the covenant of works and then with federal headship. So the next question then is, uh, Jesus gives us the righteousness of God. Okay, so like we walk through, we're guilty. We have uh, these three reasons why we're guilty before God. We're forgiven. We're declared righteous. But then what is the nature of the righteousness that we now hold positionally, that we've been given by God through faith in Christ? So what is the nature of this righteousness? And so we've talked about this already. Uh, There's two things that happen when we get saved, when we're justified. Our sins are blotted out, and the righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account. So we're taken from not just zero, but negative to zero. We're forgiven, and then we're given righteousness. And so we talked about that, and now we're going to look at the nature of that righteousness. And so if you turn back over to Romans, we're going to be looking around in there. So the next line in your notes is, does the gospel focus on Jesus' sinful life, or sorry, sinless life, or his death and resurrection? So we're going to look at how when we don't let the covenant of works drive our theology. Rather, when we go to the text and look at what it's describing, is it describing that Christ lived our law-keeping covenant of works life in our place? Or is it describing that uh, through his one act of dying on the cross for our sins and rising again, 
That's what justifies us. And is it his law-keeping righteousness or is it his divine righteousness? So Romans 5, 6 through 10 uh, says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So notice, uh, you know, while we were still sinners, Christ didn't live a vicarious life of righteousness and die for us. Much more than in verse 9, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. So again, it draws us to his sacrifice, his act of suffering and death, not to his life. Uh, And then again in verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so I think life there isn't talking about his earthly law-keeping righteousness, it's his resurrection life. So this may not seem like a huge issue, but if you jump to the last page real quick, I just want to point out how prevalent this is in uh, kind of the most of the things that we would read as Christians or, or sing or whatever it might be. So if you go down to the Songs of Praise to Jesus, His Ropes for Mine by Chris Anderson, and then if you go to uh, the second stanza and then the last line, or last two lines, sorry, last three lines, God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my, in my stead, faultless I stand with righteous works not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. And so this is covenant theology. Christ lived a vicarious, a a life in place of ours, life. He kept the law in our place because people are saved through the covenant of works. And Jesus kept the covenant of works. And so we're saved not just through his death, but through his life and his death. But that is not what scripture appears to teach. This is driven by their theology. So go back to the other page, if you would, please. And we'll continue looking down through that. So that first blank is death. So we are justified by Christ's death rather than his sinful life. And then the second one, justification comes through Jesus' righteous act. So a singular act rather than plural acts of righteousness or law-keeping. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 says, uh, I want to clarify for you the gospel that Jesus Christ uh, died according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. It doesn't say the gospel is that he lived a righteous life in our place and then died and then rose again. (laughs) But if you read any covenant theologian's works, he'll say the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's everywhere. It's in every covenant theologian's book because that's what they believe. So if you go to Romans 3.21, it touches on this as well, if you're still in Romans. Uh, So Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So again, this is pointing out that, yes, the law reveals the righteousness of Christ, but Righteousness has been revealed apart from the law now. It's been revealed through Jesus, the the righteousness of God. So Jesus is already righteous because he's God. 
and then everyone who believes in Jesus uh, receives that. Okay, the third one there, water baptism and communion focus on his death and resurrection, not his sinless acts. So if we turn back over to Romans 6, uh, maybe we'll start reading in verse 2. Certainly not. Now, how shall we who died to sin live any longer? Or do you not know that those, sorry, that as many as of, uh, of us as were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So again, attention to the gospel is drawn to Christ's death and resurrection, not his life. And then the last one, uh, the obedience of Jesus is not what is imputed to us. Rather, it is Jesus' righteousness flowing from his deity. So Romans 4, 6 states, Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21 is another one uh, that touches on that, where he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So again, it's drawing attention to that exchange. Jesus becomes sin for us. He didn't know sin. And then we get to become the righteousness of God uh, in Jesus, not in his law-keeping. Okay. Does anybody have any questions on that so far? You guys are doing great. This is going to be super helpful at the end. Yeah, Jennifer. Like as far as uh, like people using this, is that what you're saying? Right, right. Yeah, so it shows up a lot. Uh, a really easy application of it is the guilt aspect, right? So we, we may feel guilty, but we're never guilty. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I forget where that verse is. I have it written down somewhere on here. Um, do you know where it is? Romans 8. Um, and so, yeah, we still sin, even though we're 100% righteous, but we, we may feel guilty, but we're never guilty. <laughs> and that's just amazing. We, we pass over that really quickly, but we will never, God will never look at us again and look at us according to the, the sin and guilt that we deserve to be looked at upon because of our own acts and the other reasons. He only looks at us now through the lens of Christ's divine righteousness. And so that is an encouragement to us when we do sin and we feel guilty is that we shouldn't stay discouraged. We, could, we should say, wow, I'm forgiven and I have 100% of God's righteousness. I can, I can do this. I can keep trusting Christ and repenting of my sin because uh, even when I fail, I'm not losing ground in my salvation. Like I'm still secure. Um, another one uh, is with excuse making so or, or self-justification, okay? So 
I feel like guys are stereotyped for good reasons, <laughs> for making excuses for why they did something sinful. Okay, we, uh, not to point all those guys out, I'm this way too, but we all do it. We all do this. Okay, I shouldn't draw the guys out. Uh, but we, we do something wrong and we, we shift the blame and we say, this happened because I'm tired. Like, I did that. I'm, I'm angry because I had a hard day at work. I, uh, I don't know, Th- things like that. But as a person who is perfectly righteous in Jesus, fully justified, there's no need for me to self-justify because why would I? I'm, I'm perfectly righteous. I can own my sin and my position with God never shifts. It's completely to the max forever because of my union with Jesus. And so I have a sheet that we can look at at the end that, that kind of gives some ways that uh, it, it's like phrases that we'll say to shift blame or make excuses or self-justify. And it's so easy to slip into that, um, to make excuses for our sin. But instead, because we are righteous, we, we're free to say, yeah, I sinned. You know, will you forgive me? You know, Lord, will you forgive me? And then to move on in pursuing our position in Christ uh, to pursue godliness and Christ-likeness uh, because that's who we are positionally. So, do you have other thoughts? Yeah. Sure. So, there, there's still the aspect, um, you know, I would be very slow especially in other people's lives, to draw connections between (laughs) uh, sin and circumstances of how things are affecting them. Um, In my own heart, you know, maybe that's something that I I should consider, but I wouldn't like, you know, you're living in sin, that's why you're, you know, you have the flu or whatever. Uh, I don't think that's that's how it works. But there is an aspect of, of God's discipline as our loving Father that, uh, never shifts our righteousness. There's no condemnation um, to those who are in Christ Jesus. But uh, it's ways of him encouraging us to repent. And so, you know, you think about the communion passage, 1 Corinthians 11. Some of you are sick or falling asleep because you're, you're not waiting for each other. You're disunified. And uh, so, like, that's the discipline of the Lord. Or Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they, they lie to the Holy Spirit and God disciplines them. And their, their position in Christ never shifted, but God took them home um, because of, of their sin and their unrepentance. And so I don't know if that answers your question. So it does help with those types of things um, because we can remember that our righteousness never shifts, but they're still, like, we still struggle with sin in our hearts, and uh, circumstances and physical well-being can be ways that God is disciplining us to, to call us to repentance and, and faith in him again. So I hope that helps some. Uh, any other questions at this point? This is super fun. This is like one of my favorite things to talk about. So I'm enjoying this. I hope you are. Okay. The next thing, so what righteousness do I have? 
So this, these are more theological terms that people use to describe Christ's um, law-keeping that is put on our account. So active obedience is the, the covenant or federal headship view, and passive obedience is the seminal headship view. So active obedience, Jesus gives us his law-keeping righteousness, so he's actively keeping the law to give to us so that we can have eternal life through the covenant of works. And then passive obedience uh, is, I think, the right answer to the question. Jesus gives us his righteousness, which he has as a member of the Godhead. So individuals who hold the federal headship view or the active obedience view would go to passages like Matthew 3, where Jesus says, I've come to fulfill all righteousness, and say, look, there he is. He's come to fulfill the covenant of works so that we can be given his righteous works, his righteous law-keeping works. And I just don't think the, the pattern of Scripture supports that. And in that text, I think Christ is just saying that he's come to not earn righteousness that he didn't have previously, but to prove that he is righteous. He is God because he did keep the law. So, uh, yeah, it'll be fun to look at this here. So this is a popular parenting book, Give Them Grace, um, by Elise Fitzpatrick. And I just want to read a couple lines here. Oh, boy. Um, So after quoting Matthew 3, that text, she says, Jesus had come to fulfill all goodness and righteousness. Where we had failed, he would succeed. Okay, so he's fulfilling the righteousness that Adam failed to do as our covenant head in the garden. He would be circumcised for us, baptized for us. He would respond to his parents' unjust questioning of his goodness with righteousness and truth. He would love his father and his neighbor neighbor perfectly, and then he would be stripped of all the reward for the goodness he had earned. So you see that they believe that Jesus is earning goodness through his law-keeping. And that just seems absurd to me to, to say that, that God could earn any more righteousness. That I just, yeah, I, I think they're wrong. <clears throat> I mean, you think about Jesus right after that, um, at the end of Matthew 3, before Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He doesn't say, great job, Son, Now you get to go become the beloved son and be well-pleasing to me by fulfilling the law. He's already righteous because he is God. Okay, a few pages later. Um, Let's see here. I don't want to read it all. So this is giving instruction on how to help your child in relation to this context of Christ's law-keeping. So keep displaying his goodness to them. So a lot of this is, is good advice that we can use from our perspective, (laughs) but we don't want to take it all. Do it over and over and over again, because we don't know the state of our children's souls and because they might simply want to please us by praying to be saved, we must continue to give them the law and encourage them to ask God for faith to believe that that he is as good as he says he is. So that's not bad. Um, The law is helpful and true and good, And it reveals what God is like, but 
Um, so we use it in this way. It reveals our sin. It shows us that we're wrong and that we need a Savior. But where they go wrong, I'm going to skip a couple sentences, and that the next paragraph, it says, We will also give God's law to our children who say they are saved to make them thankful for Christ's perfect law-keeping of it in their place. When they fail to obey, they can thank God that their relationship with him isn't predicted, or sorry, predicated upon their obedience, but upon Jesus' obedience. Even their disobedience can be an occasion to remind them that their Savior is praying for them and that their sin won't ever separate them from him or his love for them. And so it's, it's really close to what we would say, but uh, they just continue to push uh, the righteousness of Jesus through law-keeping. Uh, so I, I meant to read a couple sentences before, so listen to this. Perhaps they are truly saved, and if so, the law will help them learn what real goodness looks like. So they're not wrong. The law is true and reveals who God rightly is, but uh, we'll talk about it in a second. We're not under the law. We're under grace as New Testament believers, and so we'll look at that in a second. Um, Remember, their obedience does not make them righteous, but if they are righteous, if they've tasted how good he is, then they will begin to desire to obey out of a heart of gratitude. If a child is regenerate, he will grow in his desire to know and to demonstrate his love for God. And so, um, yeah, what they're, what they're saying there is that, you know, we should teach the law to our unsaved children to help them see their need for Christ to be saved, but it's the need for Christ's law-keeping righteousness. And then they continue to teach the law in a way that uh, encourages... So what she says there is kind of opposite of how I'll say it. She says, uh, we want them to be thankful that Christ kept the law for them, even when they fail. But what she's saying there is that we should teach them the law <laughs> to keep the law, and uh, that's not what Paul teaches. So what covenant theologians do is they divide the law into three aspects. So in the old, so they're not out sacrificing goats and rams or, or doing, uh, you know, all these different things that the law requires. If you read Leviticus or you know some of those things, they divide the law into ceremonial. Oh boy, I'm going to lose it. Civil and moral, okay? And then they say that the, the civil and ceremonial parts of the law are gone. So now there's just the moral law of God, and we need to keep the moral law of God. And that's the way they get around not having to keep, you know, all the, the crazy ceremonial things and then the, the civil laws of Israel. And it just gets really messy, and that's why covenant theologians, they say Sunday is the, the Christian Sabbath, and that we are required to rest on Sunday because they believe that that law is for today. But we're not under law, we're under grace. And uh, what we see in Hebrews is that the, the law has been set aside. So most, most of the Ten Commandments have been repeated in the New Testament. Like we still shouldn't kill people, we still shouldn't lie, we still shouldn't covet, you know, all these things. But the, the one that is not repeated is the Sabbath. Instead, in Hebrews 4, we learn that Jesus is our Sabbath. So now, instead of taking a day of Sabbath rest uh, from our laboring to keep the law, we have Jesus, who is our Sabbath rest, our perfect rest, because we have his divine righteousness. 
And so now we're always at Sabbath rest because we're never laboring for righteous works. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> so every day is Sabbath. Um, and that, that shows some of the ways that Israel misunderstood the Sabbath rest. Um, but yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, another thing about uh, covenant theology is they, they believe that they're saved because Christ kept the works of the law, right? The covenant of works, the law of God as it's revealed in the Ten Commandments and other places. And so I one of my favorite uh, theologians is R.C. Sproul, not because I agree with him, but because he's so clear on what he believes and I disagree with him <laughs> on a lot of things, and I agree with him on a lot too, but he, he's just so honest. You can't find covenant theologians who are willing to say what the ramifications of these actually are. So about a month ago, I was driving home, and I turned on family radio uh, at lunchtime when I'm driving home, and R.C. Sproul was on. He's preaching from Galatians 2, and in there it says that no flesh shall be justified by the works of the law. Okay, that's what the verse says. And then he goes, except the works of Jesus keeping the law, the, the law-keeping works of Jesus. And I'm just like, he said it. <laughs> I've never heard him say it out loud. He said, we, and then he started yelling, you are saved by works. You are saved by works. He said it like 10 times, yelling it at the congregation. And I was just like blown away that he would say that. And it should strike us funny because uh, it's not true. And he, he walked through uh, the covenant of works and, and all that stuff to explain it to him. But he read that verse and then said, except the, the law-keeping works of Jesus. And I was just blown away that he would say that. So I'm still trying to find that sermon to like record that snippet so I can share it at times like these because they... Lots of covenant theologians today drop that part because they're ashamed of it. Or, or they drop the foundation and then keep the stuff on top, and it just it doesn't work uh, with what the Bible says. So there's that little snippet for you. It's kind of fun. Uh, so here at the end, we, we need to ask, why does it matter? And we've kind of touched on this throughout it. So if positionally we are justified by the works of the law, then we should practically live out the works of the law. And so that's why people who are covenantal keep, uh, keep the law, teach the law as something that we should uh, obey today. And um, I already explained how they, they broke the law up into three parts, and that's how they let it make sense for their lives today. But um, I've heard stories about Dutch reform communities where they keep the Sabbath, and that there, you could see, as you walk down the street, you could see water coming out from under people's garage doors on Sundays because they were ashamed to wash their car in the driveway because they were working on the Sabbath. Isn't that really interesting? Because they, they think they're under the law still. And so they, they won't wash their car out in the driveway. So I think that's Dr. Paul's dad's community that he grew up in was Dutch Reformed, and he shared that story that, that they keep the Sabbath. <laughs> that just blows my mind. Okay, uh, secondly, the same word, if positionally we are justified by Jesus' 
God-righteousness, we should practically live out godliness. So you can see the shift there. Um, and yes, we can still know who God is through the law, and much of the law is repeated in the Old Testament, but the law is given without threat of punishment. Uh, sorry, the, the New Testament uh, instructions are given without threat of punishment or condemnation, unlike the law of the Old Testament was given. And so it's actually something, uh, it's not new, it's still revealing who God is, and it's true and good and right, but it affects us differently as people who are in Christ with his complete righteousness. And then uh, the last one on this page, we are not under the law, we are under grace. So Romans 6.14, we referenced this earlier, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the under law, but under grace. So Paul doesn't say there, you're not under the ceremonial and civil aspect of the law, you're under the moral aspect of the law. No, he just says, law, you're not under it. Instead, you're under grace. And we don't have time to look at what all that means, um, but some other passages you could look at is Galatians 5.18 and Romans 10.4. And then uh, this last section here, uh, we already kind of talked about the song. So the last section, now what? What do we get to do? We get to live out the divine righteousness of Jesus. Jesus' divine righteousness. So this is really cool. We get to show people what Jesus is like, what God is like, because uh, that is who we are positionally, and we believe that by faith, and so we act on it practically, and we have the Spirit's help and the Word to guide us, as we seek to uh, show the world what Jesus looks like. So the first blank in this one is, legally we stand before the Father with the righteousness of God on our account. So practically we should live that out. So we talked about that one already. Uh, Secondly, all those uh, God justifies, he glorifies. So in Romans 8, our justification is a surety that God will bring us all the way to glorification. So we're never going to uh, be lost in the, in the transition to our eternal salvation, okay? So my professor, Dr. Myron Houghton, he'd have someone pick a number. Somebody, pick, somebody has to pick a number. Any, any number. Four, okay? And then as we read down through this, uh, keep the number four in your head and... So let's let's read it first. Uh, Verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, those he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So now my professor would say, okay, if God foreknew four people, how many did he predestine? Four. Okay. You guys got to stick with me here. Okay. <laughs> okay. If God predestined four people to be conformed to the image of his son, how many did he call? Okay. If he called four people, how many did he justify? Excellent. If he justified four people, how many did he glorify? Four. Exactly. So God doesn't lose anyone in this process. If we are justified in Christ, then we will be glorified as well. There's no uh, 
losing our salvation because it's not our righteous works. It's Christ, and those will never change. And so through our union with him, we are eternally secure based on God's faithfulness and the perfect righteousness that's been applied to our account through Jesus. Okay. Number three, we are not under law, but under grace. And so fear of punishment is gone. So when we sin, we don't tremble before God because we fear his condemnation because there's no condemnation towards us who are in Christ. Instead, uh, we should feel ashamed. There's still a level of shame that positionally I'm 100% righteous and I keep failing to do that. And so there can be shame involved with sin, and that's okay. God uses that to bring us to himself. But then there's uh, forgiveness and uh, encouragement to continue uh, walking in the Spirit and living out Christ's righteousness. But there's no fear. We don't have to fear uh, God in the sense of he's going to send me to hell if I sin against him, if I break his law. Uh, And then four, rather than strive to keep the works of the law, we live under grace, which teaches us to live godly and hope in Jesus. So Titus 2, I'd encourage you to read that on your own. It just talks about how the, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And it goes on uh, to talk about some other things. But God's grace, which we're now under, teaches us. It instructs us, just like the law did. In Galatians, uh, Paul talks about how the law is a tutor that brings us to Christ. Now we have grace that instructs us of how to live like Christ. And so uh, that's where we are now. We're not under the law. We're under grace, and it's a lot better. So that would be another fun thing to think about sometime. So the songs of praise, his robes for mine, we do sing that as a church, and it's a great song. It, it shows that exchange of robes that's so beautiful, um, that Christ takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And um, yeah, I think we can sing that wholeheartedly and understand that we don't agree with 100% of it, um, but still uh, love Christ and uh, appreciate his vicarious life, and sorry, his vicarious death in our place. So close, guys. We almost made it without me messing up. Okay, uh, the last thing I'll give you is a piece of paper that it's from a Bible study booklet that kind of gives some ways that we self-justify. Um, so it gives on the left side an excuse So like what we might say in our self-justification of sin. And then the right side is is a more uh, clear way of kind of what we're thinking behind that. Do you mind taking those to them? Thank you. So this isn't infallible or anything, but it's just a way to think about. uh, You're welcome. That now, because we have the complete righteousness of Jesus... We're fully justified. There's no reason to self-justify. We can own our sin. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, We can own our sin and... um, just faithfully repent and ask for the Lord's forgiveness um, every time. So, of course, we'll, we'll fail and have shortcomings, but there's hope in Christ because we never lose any of 
his righteousness. So uh, maybe if you have time in your prayer group, uh, you could glance through that together. But maybe there's one of those that you read that, uh, you know, you're like, oh, man, I make that excuse all the time. I don't need to do that. Next time I sin, um, I don't need to say, oh, I had a bad day or week or I'm tired. Um, I can say, yeah, I, I fell short there. I, I wasn't showing you what the divine righteousness of God looks like. Will you forgive me? Um, and then you, you move on by faith in Christ. All right. Thank you.